So we're going to try to respond to some, some questions this evening. Uh, I'll give a talk. Though it probably would turn into <laughs> a few talks. <laughs> because clearly there's, you know, there's wads of questions. And uh, we only have so much time. Um, so, uh, what we do we try to sort of we try to cluster sort of t- questions that seem to touch into the same area, and then we had this idea rather than deal with you know forty questions, we deal with like seven seven or eight topics, and we sort of crunch it down. Um, so listen up, because your question, we'll read the questions out and we'll kind of see what we can make out of them, really. Um, and so that, that's, the, that's the way we thought we'd do it. Uh, and we have taken liberty of looking also at what questions we felt would be most helpful for the group at this particular time. Yeah. So some questions, yeah, they're, they're, good, they're reasonable questions, but really, you know, we can put a note on the board or something, you know, they, they, really for our practice at this time, that's what we wanted to home in on. So what we thought we'd do so that we would all, you know, be the leader. So Aya would give the main response to this topic and then she'd see if we wanted to comment on something so that we all, she'll be the main voice and then we'll chirp in and then I'll be the main voice and so forth. And some of the questions are particularly dealing with stupid things that I've said, so I've got to, I've got to take the rap for it. <laughs> or, or things that were not quite clear. So where should we start? Would you like to start? Yeah. <coughs> asked about hope. Hope isn't something mentioned in Theravada Buddhist teachings. However, in our culture, hope is mentioned and expressed regularly, colloquially, and spiritually. What about hope? <laughs> we have no hope. <laughs> we, do, we don't do hope. But what we do do is we do putting in the right causes and conditions for good results. So if we just sit around, somebody asked about armchair Buddhism. Hope is a kind of armchair thing. You're just uh, hoping blankly into what? Into the future. And we don't recommend that. (laughs) Thinking about the future or thinking about the past is dukkha. If you're thinking, then you're suffering in that way. It's a kind of wrong intention. So rather than hoping... Though it's a lovely word like, yeah, hope for the best, put in all the causes and conditions and hope for the best. But if we're paying close attention, if we're listening to the instructions, then we're trying to 
clear the mind of its obstructions so that we're ready to meet the present moment as as best as we can as practitioners. That means we have the faith, the confidence, the energy, the mindfulness, caretaking the breath, caretaking our attention, our intention, and our ability to walk the path. So then if we have some heavy karma, it'll come up, but we can work through it. And that's much better than hope, because what we want are, are wholesome results. And we don't bank on the results, we just um, use skillful states of mind and skillful intentions and skillful practice to bring about those results. They don't come about without our applied effort. We don't rely on apps. <laughs> we, we are the, our, this mind, this amazing facility that we have, these faculties are, they're built in apps. We don't have to download them, they're already there. We just have to use them correctly. It's much better than hope. It's, it's, tr- it's true. And hope is a thought. That's, yes, of course, and then we want to be enlightened. We hope we'll be enlightened. But actually we're not hoping in the way that I think that maybe this is used colloquially. It's much more we know the path and we have a great advantage in knowing it. So we just have to get behind the steering wheel and direct ourselves well. Then we will arrive. It's inevitable. You know, just like if you want to cook your dinner and you just put it on the stove, put the pot there and just sit there and hope it it, it gets ready. It doesn't. We have to apply the correct conditions. Create some heat, turn the knob, don't turn it too high, don't turn it too low, and observe when it's boiling, you remove it from the You don't leave it there, it'll burn, cause a fire, etc. So if we're monitoring our conduct, speech, and thought, then we will cook away the hindrances and uh, install ourselves properly on the path and cultivate the factors of enlightenment. And then it's, this is the ticket, this is the, this is the real way forward. That touches on many things. So the other, should I, do you want to comment? I suppose all I'd say, of course, I yeah, agree with you. Maybe just the word hope and what that means. I think you just also bear in mind there's such a thing as as faith, which may be close to what you're talking about. You know, a sense of hope may be the feeling that you know, there could be a better. And perhaps in Buddha Dharma there's Sadha, a sense of, well, you know, let's, have a, let's try, it could be better. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of that opening of the heart. Mm. But then, of course, Sadha has to be backed up with Virya, which means having had that opening, then you apply. You look for a specific way to apply yourself. Um, so Sadha, Virya, and then Sati, you frame it up and keep working with it. That's all I add to that. Mm. <coughs>
I think he's kind of <laughs> giving his chunder. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Do you want to do it? Okay. Or do I? Yeah. Have you? That's you've done that thing, have you? I've only done one. <laughs> There's the cluster about specific instructions for the continuity of awareness and preparation in the time of dying. And this is this is where I was going to go on from the hope. Go. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where faith comes in because once you've tried the practice and some of you have been doing it for decades and there are a lot of people here and you know uh, 60s 70s and 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 practicing for years and we have faith we do we have the faith and the trust that this practice can transform us so in our latter years nature is already telling blowing the horn like telling us urgent urgent apply apply work put in whatever even if our energy is diminishing we have so much practice behind us that uh, that will support our our intention and our wish to um, keep practicing and not worry about uh, what's going to happen at the moment of death because it could be any moment at any age to, for anyone all of us really need to prepare for dying. Um, it's not just because we're old. It's because we're alive on this planet. It's a dangerous place, violent place. There's so much aggression and lack of safety in many ways. Someone was talking about a friend being hit by a bicycle, dying, young person. Could happen anywhere, run over by a bus, um, so the specific preparation for death is sila, samadhi, and panya to cultivate this path, um, cleaning up internally our conduct and speech externally, the voices in the mind that I can't do this or I'm not worthy, I'm not a worthy vessel. These kinds of instructions to ourselves are not what the Buddha would recommend. So if we can let go the old tapes because they've passed their die-by date. <laughs> so we don't want to die with those old tapes in our minds, in our hearts. We just want to keep the commentary of, of the Buddha's voice going and trust that, trust it, use it, make the moments precious appreciate, bring up the joy that we have this refuge, that it's reliable, it's trustworthy, and we are worthy vessels. The fact that we have a human birth is a, a really great blessing in itself. We are human beings. Above all, we have the capacity to reflect and to examine what we're doing here. So this is a little bit that I could say if you wanted to add more Bande. So, you know, I'd say life is a preparation for for death and that you you, bear, you live with it. So bearing in mind, you know, what you want to take with you. 
Realizing what you have to let go of, so what you have that you can leave behind you, hold it lightly, hold it carefully. Mm. Yeah, just what you need to help you on your way. <clears throat> and do uh, so that you can use this time when we have sense consciousness, which we won't always have. Um, we lose that physical vigor, which we won't always have. You know, all those things that seem so normally me and mine. So they're, now they're here. So now's the time when you, you start to transmute them and use them to d- develop something to take with you called uh, your goodness, your bunya, <laughs> your accumulation of skills and wisdom and purity of your heart. That's what, you, you know, that's what goes with you. So you use this time when we have all these things, you know, to just... How do, they, how do we cultivate, how do we grow, you know, how do we get gold out of this stuff? You know, and it's, uh, you know, you have to transmute it. And, you know, some people just think it's there for, you know. <laughs> but death, death gives life a purpose, I think, in a way, a real, a, a, you know, transcendent purpose. So you remember it because it happens all the time everyone and it could it'll be yours soon the, um, there, the, there's a cluster of questions about diminishing energy and you know I, I just want to give you an example of I've done a lot of visits to um, Buddhist practitioners in hospice and there was one woman, uh, Ruth, I'll mention her, because it was really quite exceptional. She spent 99 days in hospice. It was the longest lived hospice patient. And um, she had so much gumption, whenever somebody was carried out, she would say, success! <laughs> so... In the end, she wasn't receiving any visitors, but um, I got a lift into Ottawa from where we are, and because I was really eager, to, it was such a privilege to visit her. And um, the hospice aide said, "You know, I made an undies here, and she agreed to see me." So I came in. I never said a word to her. She was sitting thin as a rail in the middle of this empty bed, with her head in her arms, um, just sitting there very quietly, and I went and sat next to her, and I just chanted silently to myself. And then suddenly she was aware that I was there, and she looked up, and she gave me this radiant smile, just total radiance. Made Anjali, we clasped hands, I chanted, and I left. It was like she gave me a blessing. That you know, this is, this is a possibility. It's just knowing that it's like hanging up a, a coat that you can't wear anymore. Because this life is just a passage. And we're all, as people have said, we're all in the waiting room. So if we can just wait with the Dhamma in, in our hearts, we can really let go of all that we've held so tightly. Because what we have in our heart is a perfect springboard for the passage. And 
to quote, um, I can't remember his name, but uh, I will later, um, we are spiritual beings on a human journey rather than human beings on a spiritual journey. So it's just a chapter. And having diminished energy is not an obstacle. And even if the mind is slipping away, within us is the gold, as Ajahn said, as Lung Po said. We take that, and that those are the Dhamma wings. reflect on the dangerous challenge and benefit that may arise when one spends time with love ones oh right I've been meditating for over four years now I'm old oh okay the final phase this is I did this one and the contemplation of the body parts and death are rarely brought up. Please, how do we incorporate into our daily practice? Contemplation of the body is really just a way of examining the the elements that compose these. This is a composite, and to help us have a better understanding of that, that's, there's no one in there, in the way we've traditionally think and believe there's some solid being, this is me. But if we start to take them up the body parts individually, which part is me? Is one way that is, is, is me in the liver, in the intestines, the lungs, and it really loses its meaning. But also it gives us a certain dispassion about our attachment to this body, about trying to beautify it or present it. So we want to keep it in good shape, healthy, as a vehicle that can run and function properly, but to hold it in a way that uh, is, is something with which we identify can be very, can create an obstacle for um, penetrating insight. And if we see it more as elements, to see the elemental nature the bones, the earth element, and the water element, the fluids, blood, and uh, saliva, contemplating these different aspects of the physical constituents of the body, the heat and the cold in the body, the fire element, and the air element in in the lungs, and the the breath, even contemplating the breath, Um, the form of the breath, and using the breath for our spiritual contemplation, these give us a very different attitude to this composite. And I think it's a a tremendous support for uh, contemplating not me, not mine, and um, promoting or 
growing dispassionate about the body, detachment to the body. Yes, that sounds very nice. I would say the same. The, uh, there's a lot of um, emphasis on contemplation of the body in our, our tradition. Historically, Theravada, you'll, you'll see it there in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and throughout the suttas. And in the Thai forest tradition, many of the teachers um, really emphasize it very strongly and even insisting that their disciples must somehow use the body, whether it's um, uh, sensations or uh, contemplations, imagery, like uh, Aya was just describing, uh, going through the different parts and and, um, contemplating through imagery in a way which goes beyond just thinking about the body, but insists that you must go through the body in order to sort of really penetrate into um, the truth of anatta, of no-self. So the uh, use of the body can help in, in uh, the most basic ways when we come in. That's what we're generally encouraged to do, is to follow the breath, which is uh, an expression of uh, the body's um, life, the physical sensations of breathing in and out, as a way to um, ground ourselves, to cultivate mindfulness and awareness, and also to use for concentration, and then also really um, uh, take a you know have a chance to um, uh, have some perspective on, and then and then release ourselves from the stories, the narratives, the perceptions that uh, we have inherited, and that we are habitually creating the world that we live in. Um, it's all world of thought for the most part and while it's linked in and expressed in 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 physicality by using the body just the physical sensations and you know what we can see also skin nails teeth hair of the body hair of the head these are five meditation objects that uh, monks and nuns are given when and in as part of our ordination ceremony in fact a fundamental meditation objects. By using these things, it can really um, easily, uh, or in in a simple way, let's say, give us a way to get out of the world of our heads, me and mine and my world, my needs, my feelings. There's just this body and it's like this. And we have all these ideas about it, so seeing the body in its constituent parts is extremely helpful because we tend to have a self-image which is very linked to our physical self-image and it's a, it's, 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 it's a pretty one-sided image. We don't tend to notice the sweat and the, the pimples and the, well, we might, um, but we don't tend to notice what's underneath and think about the blood and the, all the moving parts that don't look so good underneath the skin. So we are encouraged to use these body contemplations as a way to um, counterbalance the biases and attachments that we have and the identification that we have with it uh, in a way that can lead to peace, a peacefulness with seeing things as they are. And and, uh, while there might at first be some 
uh, sort of reactive disgust. In the end, it's just what it is. It's not beautiful, it's not ugly, it's, it's uh, matter. And we're in relationship to it, and yet we don't have to feel that it's us. We don't have to take ownership of it. It, it breathes on its own, the blood moves on its own, and our relationship to it, how we feel about the body and how we identify with it or not is something we're doing. So it can really help to penetrate through and, and see that by using these body contemplations that we have in the tradition. cluster since we're on the body there's another heap of questions about the body why is it important to be aware of the whole body in a broad way rather than focus more closely on the breath in a particular area how do you ground in the body when the body feels like an unsafe home because of trauma I keep going numb and falling into self-hate. Binge eating and hating my appearance are also part of the story. The best positive for seated meditation. Would you please be able to weave in the five elements in the practice, much like you shared the water element today. These refer to ways of contemplating the body. Uh, in terms of practice, what is the meaning of contemplating the body, etc., internally and contemplating externally? So there's a cluster there, and I'll try to move around within those, move through those. Uh, so we've seen there are various ways to experience body, and so I think just the previous um, set of responses really contemplating it as a material object. Uh, something you can see with your eyes, a material object, which is, you know, kind of what people normally associate. <coughs> Body is a rupa, material object of form. Um, so that is obviously very external because you stand apart from it, and it's it's out there rather than in here. I can't feel my liver. You know, I can't see my lungs. But you know, so that's internal, isn't it? You know, all that. But it also. Um, you can contemplate the body internally as how the body feels in itself. You know, so if we contemplate the body internally, the likelihood is you don't feel, you don't really sense your gallbladder or your brain, but you do sense pressure, heat, warmth or lack of it, tingles, flushes. So these can be this internal experience of the body you know, an immaterial, or, you know, what you experience in your own body, uh, can also be uh, handled, or just for the sake of clarity, in terms of what are called elements, properties. So there's everything that makes that has the sense of solidity, that is able to carry weight. You might say. It is, so pressure can land on it and it, it remains solid. So it's called the earth element. And there are degrees of that. You know. So obviously the, 
most rigid aspect of that would be what we experience or we'd imagine is our bones. You can't really see your bones, but you've got a good idea. Okay, that 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 feels bony. That's a, but really it feels earthy, very rock. And then some other pieces feel less tough muscle. Some people pieces feel kind of quite um, you know less firm, but they still carry some pressure. So you know they can still have an earthy quality to them, such as the flexing ones, belly. You know, so certain soft earth, soft earth, hard earth, rigid stone, earth. Everything has that that ability to or property of carrying weight of some kind extends and naturally earth is able then to sustain a form it doesn't you know water can't water just air can't earth holds a form so yeah it's valuable um, then uh, the other elements would be the called caloricity the fire element the warmth <coughs> Vitality, light, everything that's got a sense of radiating and it's an attractor, it's an energy, it's a vitality, it's the thing that uh, we're fired up with, it's uh, everything fiery, could be the warmth of your body, the light, the luminosity in, in the mind. So these actually cross the body-mind boundaries and also can be seen externally, so you can see there's earth, there's something, my mind, my eye hits that and it doesn't go through it. There's an earth there. And that again takes anatta a bit more, you know, that's not, that's what I see. You know, I can call it a person. Excuse me, I don't want to be rude, but <laughs> I know you're a person. <laughs> but, yeah, but it, on a very primary level, it's clonk, there's a fall, earth, right? Um, so then the warmth, radiance, light, heat, that also experience. Then the um, person mentioned water element, which is a bit subtle. And let's go to the air element. Air, air element is that which exerts pressure, pushes. So breath tends to make the body swell and subside. Breath is the obvious earth element. But the Buddha says uh, air element traveling through the limbs. So clearly we don't breathe through our limbs, it could be energies pushing and we feel this movement, everything, the moving quality is called the air element, it moves around. Uh, And then there's the water element. Water element is called cohesive, Uh, whereas everything settles in it, it tends to flow, it tends to suffuse everything. So water, you can't, if you have a lake, you can't divide the lake up into three separate bits of water, they're all going to merge. So it's a merging. Yeah, so if we contemplate the water in our body, clearly there are parts that are wet, but in a more broad sense, we recognize, you know, that quality in my wrist, I can feel that spreading up my arm. There's not a clear edge cut off. There's a sense in which everything connects to everything else, the water element. Beauty of this, yeah. No, no, let's get to the fifth. Fifth is space. Space, both within one's throat, which is the primary area for the space element, where it must be cultivated because that's its home base. And if it's not, you're in, pro- you're in trouble. So, and then also space around the body. 
So you can't really experience your body without space. You know, you'd be squashed flat. So the fact that we can, you know, extend and means that the space around. And so this is important to acknowledge. And the theme is that all these four or five, sometimes only the first four, but all the five should be in harmony because they're all present in any bodily experience. Mm. They're all present in any bodily experience. So breathing in and out certainly is the movement of the air, that moving. Mm. Then you can feel at the end of the out-breath there's a sense of grounding earth, the firmness to it. There's also the fact that it flows and permeates everything, it's water. There's also a quality of vitality that goes along with its fire. It can be very bright, shining. Uh, so, and naturally, it, it, there's a sense of space around the breath, in which the breath travels. You couldn't travel unless there was space. So, so all the elements are implicit in any, any particular aspect of embodiment when you contemplate it internally. Again, it's very anonymous, so it gets underneath the person. It's an atar. And it helps, again, to, to release us from the visual anatomical uh, presentation of the body, which, of course, is the one that one's so constantly being, you know, uh, seen and also held up as this is what you are and you don't look very nice and kind of stuff like that. So you just cut all that off and go, well, may not lie to you, but that's your problem. In here, I'm fine. <laughs> because usually the visual body is somebody else's, isn't it? I can't see it. So it, the visual body is for you, not for me. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, I just, just get over it, you know, and um, do, do this other stuff, because this other stuff is associated particularly, you know, in, in Asian traditional medicine with healing. Like if those elements are out of balance, then you're in trouble, you know. Like it's too watery, you're all sort of, you've got no firm, you're too rigid, your fire element's too, too feisty, it's too up. So the, the healers are often looking at how these imbalances actually begin to affect the organs. So you might be burning out, right? <laughs> And interesting enough, the language does, you know, metaphorically, you know, uh, like I feel sitting like a rock is generally considered good. Thinking like a rock isn't, but <laughs> <laughs> sitting like a rock, you know, we feel firm. So it's, it's just metaphorical. So the idea is if you contemplate your body and it just feels like all you feel is this flaring fire and heat, then wait a minute, what's needed? Well, let's see if we can go to, first of all, maybe some space, then perhaps water, a sense of a gentleness, and a cohesiveness, and perhaps grounding, earthing. Too watery, just feels so amorphous, so sort of, oh, yeah, then needs definitely some earth, firm it up. And so these also have psychological counterpart, psychological effects. So you get people really on fire, you know, fiery types. Then you get the kind of plodding, right, get down to gruff business, earthy types. Then you've got the all, 
well, we feel and share and how this is all going to be for all the watery types. <laughs> and then you get the airy types. We could do this, but then we could do that. Maybe there's this and we'll do that. But then the other hand, it could be this and it could be that. <laughs> so, the, uh, the space, well, whatever. What, I mean, and even whatever, if that's too direct, maybe it's up to you which whatever you want, but I don't really mind, because whatever, whatever it is, it's, there it is. And you're going, what the? <laughs> so, so you're like, G- give, me, give me something solid I could bounce off. You know? <laughs> so these kind of qualities are to be blended, so you get something that's you know, reasonably firm, but not rocky, you know, like a bit of something you can get some, you know, get a bit of feedback off, bit of push against, push back, you know. You don't want something that's just going to keep collapsing in front of you. But some of, you know, a bit of give and a bit of flow, but let's blend it together. So these, it's what we do, ideally, you know, when we're meditating, you can contemplate that and just, well, just need a bit of grounding here, you know. Where do I feel earth? Well, I feel it in my knees and I feel it in my backside and I feel it, well, just hold that for a while and let things just steady. Yeah. So that's the way you can use these elements internally. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything about elements. Mm. Oh, so. Enough yeah. elements. Yeah. So then also you can see them outside and you can see the, the physical earth, you know, and the sun and air, and there's very universal properties to things. So, it's all with the body. So, body internally and externally. Well, it's, it's kind of, there it is, it's one of those things that nobody really exactly knows, so people have tended to try to form something around that. Because it's a refrain that's used in the Satipatthana Sutta, also associated with feeling, mind, and mind state. So, how do you contemplate mind internally and externally? So, you know, because if it's so, sometimes people tra- translate it as, well, internally is my body, externally is yours, you know. And it, but then, how do I contemplate your mind? Because I can't see it. So, but the real phrase actually is, again, not, it doesn't exactly say internally, externally. It says ajata bahidao, which means something like here and there, or near and far. So, you know, <laughs> so obviously one could say with a body, yeah, here and there. Um, but when I come to the here-ness of it, I can't see it. There, here and there, near and far. So I sometimes use this as um, like uh, contemplating one's experience of body when you're really subjective, how it is, and contemplating when you experience yourself as being seen by somebody, so you're aware of the external appearance of it, or what you think you look like, or the kind of image you have in your mind of my body, I'm kind of too weird, or my nose is too long, or fat, or something. You know, you have that external sense of it, and then you can contemplate that and let go of any feeling about it. 
So perhaps it can be like that, subject-object, contemplating one's mind internally. Contemplating externally means, you know, this is how the mind is. You know, and then we contemplate it externally as an object. My mind, you know, seen as an object is kind of not very, is a mess. Or, you know, we, we kind of see it outside or see it as an object. You know what I mean? You know, like, my mind's not as good as hers. But then internally, my mind is just, what is it? It's just neither good nor bad, really. It's just things. So one can use it however one wants to use it, really. (laughs) Whatever. So how do you contemplate, how do you ground in the body when the body feels unsafe? Well, this is, yeah, yeah, well, right. I think here, mm, well, you know, does it all feel unsafe? Do your feet feel unsafe? Mm. Or does it feel unsafe when you just bring your attention here and you, you, you get a sense of, oh, just as soon as attention comes to this, you feel slightly, you know, under threat or tense. If that's the case, then perhaps one shouldn't do that. Should practice, cultivate something like, um, you know, mind, skillful mind states, um, loving kindness, compassion, and so forth. So you build up a, the proper atmosphere of mind before you even direct mind towards body. And if you can direct a rich mind towards this body, that just even lightly aware of it, they may help to meet that, you know, agitated experience that can happen when you, if you, if your body is deeply traumatized in that way. So get the mind right first. So you go to the mind, if that's helpful, you know, work on that heart attitude, loving heart. Um, to, if you can't enter your body in a, a way that feels comfortable. Um. Best posture for seated meditation. The best with quote marks around it. <laughs> Best is uh, that uh, gives the best results <laughs> for alertness. This blend of um, alertness and relaxation. Yeah, alertness and relaxation. Yeah. So that certainly the body can help that. And again, we're looking at how can your body be least most balanced and least, least carrying least stress. Now, obviously, bodies have pain, but, you know, if I'm sitting like that, then certainly the muscles in my body have got to, got to keep working to hold me up, you know, and also it's, it's not stable. But if I can find that way of balance, the idea of balance, that's the place where you feel the least effort is necessary. So, you know, you experiment with that. And it can take quite a while. 
because it does require the, the musculature and the body to adjust. And you look at things like, you know, this base area is most significant. So you want to take all the, as much out of this as you possibly can, light and empty this so that all the strength is down here for balance. Because you, you balance from the base, you get that strong, then that's going to, the rest of it can lighten up above. If you're doing, certainly helps if you can get the pressure off your belly, because if that is pressing down with your chest, then your breathing can't operate properly. So you want something that can help your chest to rise. So by and large, people have, have come down to sensing, well, the ideal is to have a pretty good leg span. So if you sit in a chair, spread your thighs, so you get a nice, good spread base. Um, sitting on a cushion, see if you can spread that way, gives you a strong base. Or um, And then, um, you have a good, well, no, a couple of bones at the base of the pelvis actually called the sitting bones, which are right in the lower area of the, of the buttocks. It's a couple of bony flanges you can rock on, actually. So as you get more clearly, you've got the fleshy part, the buttocks, but you want to see if you can get onto a bone, because that's the weight bearer. So there's a couple of bones there to base the pelvis. You can get on that because that's more grounded. And then you want to get your upper body to balance over, over that strong base. So you want to sort of see your upper body balancing over it. Yeah. So it's at least pull away. So then everything is coming down as one unit. And be aware of just putting too much pressure into your lower back. So the lower back shouldn't be bent in like that, it should be just lightly curved. Again, should, but you work with what you've got. Most people find they have a little cushion they put against their tail to just support where your buttock comes in. Base of your body, your buttock comes around. And you've got this kind of fleshy bit. If you just put a little wedge there that just stops you rocking back on it, gives it a little bit of lift, so you, you lift onto the onto the sitting bones yeah. So instead of slumping back so a little something there then ideally you know then we're looking at in general it's a general thing as much of this weight can be transferred directly down then the least stress there is more open the belly can be better energy yeah more shoulders carry a lot of tension more they can relax better it gets so Working with that, yeah. You sort of beginner. You try fifteen minutes or so and have a wriggle, stand up, you move around. So, anything? I think that's my piece on the body for right now. Okay. Would you like to pick up some topics, John? <coughs> so, 
<clears throat> There's a question here. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I just forgot the last bit. Can I just finish off this bit about why the whole body? Yeah. Excuse me, just address this one. So, why I'm fo- that more than focus closely on the breath in a particular area? Well, you know, because that's what the Buddha says. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't say focus on the breath in a particular area. <laughs> he says be aware of the entire body, breathing in, breathing out. So, um, and I found that's helpful because uh, yeah, you often you can find that if you're not aware of your entire body, I mean the entire sense of the entire body, then you can kind of you don't realise you constrict it so that your energy can be blocked because the body has to act in harmony. So when it's in harmony there's a lovely light, open sense to it. If any part is constricted then there's always a tension and if you don't keep the scan or awareness quite wide then things miss. Now, my practical understanding and offering is that in, within this embodiment there are Areas, somebody mentioned trauma. This is a very real thing. There's places where energies are blocked and they carry. Yeah. So if we breathe in out through the whole body, it's a possibility of releasing, opening some of these constricted areas and it clears off things. Um, and it, the awareness is then quite open and bright, particular quality to it. This doesn't by any means we're, we're not concentrated because that you can remain steadily aware and unify with that awareness. You don't have to scrunch it down. Your awareness doesn't have to scatter off. You're not like, oh, knee, knee, knee. You're aware of the entire field of the body as one, one field. Yeah, one thing. And then you notice here's a bit that's not, let's just breathe in and out through that. So, instructions, breathing in and out, experiencing the entire body, breathing in and out, experiencing the bodily formations, programs, energies, breathing in and out, calming the um, body energies. So, that's why I teach it. Thank you. Please go. So one question here says, I have noticed a tendency to blame others for my shortcomings and problems. I also blame myself. Can you suggest a more skillful approach than blaming? There are more skillful approaches, but it's very understandable to um, be uh, you know, experiencing this pattern, caught in blaming, blaming oneself, blaming others. It can be, uh, you know, rather than see it as something that's um, wrong and we need to, you know, change and, 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 and not be doing what we're doing, it's as with uh, most of uh, the stuff of our life and, and how we practice with our experience, it can be best to allow uh, ourselves to 
be as we are and, and to become aware of the pattern, to learn from the pattern without getting caught into it. That's the great gift of mindfulness and um, the way that we're developing awareness is it allows us to experience what we're experiencing but not have to get pulled into it. So Normally we think we have to become our emotions or else not experience our emotions if we don't want to get drawn in. So we look for the emotions and the uh, uh, you know, psychological patterns that we approve of and that we like and try to get more of those and not realize that we're just still, you know, becoming them, uh, getting pulled in and, and, um, and, and uh, not having the awareness and the space around what's coming up to be free of them. So then when they change or if in this case we're caught in uh, destructive patterns, we, we don't have the freedom. So to use the uh, what we do notice when we see ourselves, say in this case, blaming, blaming ourselves, blaming others, to use that to learn is really it's it's not that we're in a bad place or kind of getting practice wrong. It's 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 good stuff to work with. And I've noticed the uh, you know the, the, the we we're, we're we're all different and we have different fears and different um, insecurities. And so when we find ourselves blaming ourselves or others, there might be different factors involved. There's often a fear of um, criticism, a fear, a sense of inadequacy, and this uh, links into some of the other questions in my my cluster here. It's uh, also uh, often based on a, a, a an unwillingness to see or or um, uh, deal with things that we're dealing, we're, 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 we're kind of uh, subject to ourselves. So say in the monastic life, um, when coming into community life, and many of you may have seen this too in your own lives, I noticed that uh, the things that I would get most upset about in others around me, uh, when I watched over the weeks and months and years, I started to notice that uh, these were things that I myself was having trouble with. So if I got really annoyed with a monk who was, say, greedy in, in the way that he took his food and I was doing it all right, taking just a little bit and being the perfect monk and thinking that I was very uh, uh, noble and, and relatively free from greed in my self-image and, you know, able to to fulfill this with willpower or whatever else there was. I wasn't seeing the greed that was still there. I hadn't dealt with it. And, and yet I'd see it in somebody else and I'd blame them for, how could he do that? He's a monk. <laughs> you give up all these different things and then you take three cupcakes. <laughs> you know? And, and, and the reason I was upset and I was blaming was because... I, I wasn't dealing with that in myself. So I, I started to really value seeing uh, what would press my buttons in other people around me because it, it, it would teach me things about myself that I wasn't seeing. It's still true today. You know, I, I, if I find myself really getting sort of annoyed or, or, or outraged at someone, I, I, I try to remind myself, oh, wait, mm, better check. Might be something there. Because we don't see, that's the, that's the nature, we often don't see uh, these things in ourselves. And the, 
the relationships that we have, so for us in community life, we have plenty of relationships and opportunity to, to uh, uh, explore these things. But all of us, all of you here, we have family life, work life, we're all in a relationship. It can be a very valuable um, uh, aid in showing us the things that we're not seeing. So then, then starting to uh, really uh, be sensitive to and opening to what's there is a, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's the way in. Using mindfulness and being uh, sensitive, and especially if, if we've cultivated in ways that like Lumpa has been teaching, where we're um, fully experiencing body awareness so that we're uh, able to experience emotional um, uh, phenomena in, in, in physical ways, where we don't just think about our emotions, but we really feel it. And, and can do that with mindfulness, where we're not getting drawn in and just becoming the feeling, becoming the thought, becoming the emotion, but we can fully experience the fear or whatever it feels like, where, where, wherever the blame in this case is coming from, whatever, wherever it's coming from, we don't need to be able to uh, necessarily analyze or conceptualize or articulate it, but to become aware of it in some way allows it to be seen and be experienced. And we practice this freedom from being caught and it has a chance to to move. And we have a chance to develop that sense of um, of distance. It's a, it's it's both distance and it's a moving towards because we're more able when we're not, we know we're not going to get caught into our emotions, then we're more able to experience them um, and allow them to come up fully because we know we don't have to be afraid of feeling them. And watching over time, little by little, we see that uh, they're not us because we may know that if we're, if we're uh, interested in the Buddhist path, we read these teachings and then we start to maybe believe, okay, yes, it's not me, it's not mine, it's not, it's not, it's not me, I understand that. But that's not real insight. We might intellectually adopt that way of seeing it, but really we're still feeling like it's us. And so to be able to see that when I feel fear and I, that pattern comes to blame myself, blame others, or if I feel insecurity, and that's where it comes from, it's not actually me that's insecure. It's not actually me that's uh, uh, the fear that's afraid. There is there is fear, there is insecurity, and it's coming, just like I've seen so much coming before, and I can be with it, I can be mindful, I can fully feel it, I don't have to get drawn in, and it will do its thing, it will be here for the time that the conditions are present for it to be here, and it will move through. And, and then there's less to be afraid of in oneself, and therefore less to be afraid of in others. We we find it easier to stop blaming ourselves and blaming others, as well as other destructive patterns. Um, so there are other uh, questions here on, on working with a deep fear of being considered unworthy. Um, and uh, being able to trust oneself, uh, having uh, broken a precept in the past and causing a lot of hurt through breaking a precept. Um, feeling a lot of regret, remorse, and then feeling afraid to trust trust oneself in taking precepts again. How can I work with this lack of confidence? 
And those link in, uh, they're somewhat similar. Uh, just on that point about precepts, I would say that we, 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 we don't have to think of them. There's different ways to hold them. They're, they're structures which we can adopt if we choose to do so, powerful tools which can help us and protect us. And they don't have to be, uh, they can be lifetime vows that we commit ourselves to, and therefore they'll hold a lot of power. But they don't have to be. From a Buddhist perspective, you can take precepts for one day. And many of the people who come to the monastery will do that. They'll take the precepts for the day. And then they'll go back and they'll know that tomorrow they're going to be doing some naughty things in certain areas. <laughs> Hopefully not too naughty. But in, in traditional Buddhist countries, uh, that, that, is, that is part of how uh, lay people ha- uh, have been using the precepts <laughs> for a long time. And it still does provide some, some help. You know, there's a, there's a day of uh, containment. And, and renunciation and restraint. And so it's a conscious taking up and then a conscious putting down. And then hopefully over time we can see, well, actually I feel much better when I've taken them up and I get into trouble when I put them down. And so you take them up for longer. So in, in, in regaining trust, uh, when, we, when we've lost trust in ourselves because we've made mistakes in the past, it can be really uh, useful and skillful to see the, the, the things that we've done which have worked, which where we, ha- we have done good things, and so we know we have that capacity, and to support that in whatever way we, 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 we can, and, and even just in, in little steps, right, take the precepts for the day, and now maybe I can extend it, now till tomorrow, and now till tomorrow, and not have to think, you know, can I, will I be able to hold these for the rest of my life? Maybe I can't trust myself to do so. It's more seeing that, you know, all of us, we're... we're brothers and sisters in suffering, as they say, we've all got the potential to do harm, and we all have done harm to ourselves and others. And we've all done good. We've all done uh, things which have caused benefit to ourselves and others. And so it's really noticing the, the beneficial, the, uh, uh, the, the good intentions that we have, making much of those, and trusting our aspiration to follow that direction, which can lead to greater trust in ourselves. There's more, but I'll ask if Lumpa or Aya has anything to, to add. Yeah, the... Uh Mm. So the precept thing is really to do with uh, looking at more, you know, a very positive way, looking to cultivating a quality called the hiriotapa, which means one's developed sensitivity, conscience, you know, concern, that how my actions affect others and how the results of my actions have an effect on myself. So it's much more helpful to to look at sila as a directly felt experience in yourself and in look what happened when I she found out I told her a lie oh my goodness you know I feel so ashamed yeah so you really see the results and you or you even think of it you know if I if I did deceive him my friend how would I ever look him straight in the eye again you know so I just can't bear that <laughs> So that cultivating that sense and realizing 
you know, how, how easy the mind can justify slipping away into behavior that then causes us remorse. So we say, hey, you know, this thing's, this is a monkey. We've got to put a, some restrainers on this thing because it can do, it can go out and do stuff, you know. <laughs> so then you may start to commit because of that sensitivity. So it's really that rather than some kind of recrimination, you know, thou hast sinned stuff from the outside or well, it's all right if you just kill one ant, you know. So it's this kind of casuistry where you're nitpicking over, well, if I clean my teeth, do I clean, do I destroy bacteria? You know, is that, you know, you can, you know sort of anguishing over the things. Well, just don't kill people. <laughs> you know, start from the big picture and work down to what you can manage. And as your as your sensitivity increases, you follow that. You know, like actually, I see a little creature. I think, oh, you know, we do things like cover water barrels with mesh so mosquitoes don't get in it, lay their eggs, and then we drain the water out. So we do things like you recognise I can take take steps to avoid accidentally killing creatures, sweep around so you don't get spiders in your house that you can end up having to kill. So things like this, you look at look at you start to look at it kind of build up a a way of that can help to preserve that beautiful sensitivity because that sensitivity you know that's awakening that's an awakening intelligence that sensitivity it really is because it's really tuned in it's not moralizing it's an awakened intelligence to the cause and effect karma crucial principle so it's not social conformity it's sensitivity and that's very important to 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 uh, acknowledge and and really value you know without this we can do huge harm you know it's a god called the guardian of the world this heriotopa sometimes you see them configured on shrines two figures hiri and otopa and they're considered the lokapala the guardians of the world if these two are strong, the world is okay. You know, it's that important. Yeah. You get a sense for it. So trying to build it up from the right perspective, really. You know, because you know, whatever you do, you think nobody can see me doing it. Well, the most important person in the world sees you doing it. You. It's <laughs> not getting away. finished your cluster there, John? There's a, a few crumbs of the cluster left. <laughs> well, one has to do uh, with similar. Uh, is the, um, it's a question about praise. I'm afraid I didn't bring my glasses, so I'm not sure I can read it. Can, yeah, thank you. Can you talk about dealing with the... Can you talk about dealing with the desire for external validation and praise in our interconnected worlds at home, work and around? It can cause a lot of dukkha. 
Mm, yep. Yeah, we uh, especially well, different cultures are different, and it's all all of us as humans in every culture have this. Uh, you know, we're we're a social uh, being, so we we have a very strongly wired wish to to conform and be accepted in the group, and so there's there's a real primary. Uh, 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 energy there that we're working with, and yet also uh, some cultures, especially this one, um, really emphasizes sort of uh, looking good in, in in front of others. So there's a, there's a very strong uh, wish to be um, uh, to receive praise and to avoid blame, and that's something the Buddha talked about. The, the eight worldly winds are uh, often uh, themes uh, that we're encouraged to reflect on in our practice. Praise and blame, um, success and failure, um, happiness, unhappiness, and what's the other pair? Pain Gain and, and loss. Pain and pleasure instead of happiness and unhappiness. Gain and loss. So praise and blame is a is a primary one, and we get this, you know, uh, it comes from childhood for many of us. You know, wishes to be um, uh, praised by our parents or by our friends in the school, and so by the time we become, you know, functioning adults to the degree that we can function, um, we are often unconsciously dragged around by this fear of, of blame and, and a real need for, feeling of a need for praise. So how to work with it? It's, it, it, it's useful to, you know, open to the feelings of, that we have around it, generally feelings of fear. And I found, you know, personally, it can be really useful to uh, allow uh, ourselves to be, you know, to, to be blamed and not try to fix it. If we know that we haven't done something wrong, I mean, if we have done something wrong, we'll then ask forgiveness and, and uh, do the right thing. But people will blame us anyway. I mean, this is the thing you learn when you... So all of us here are responsible for monastic communities. <laughs> One of the, the kind of main things that you get when you become an abbot or abbess is blame. And you get praise and you get blame. And some of the praise you don't deserve and some maybe you do, and some of the blame you definitely don't deserve, even if some you do. So you get a real chance to, to work with that. And all of you, I'm sure, in your, uh, all of us in our lives will, will, will have situations where that's the case. So it's, been, it's, you know, it's, it's really useful, I've found, not to try to fix it necessarily. You know, just, okay, let the person think what they're going to think. If you've done what you can to, you know, clear it up so there's no need to allow an um, unnecessary misunderstanding because that can be, be harmful. But if you've tried and the person still blames you, well, okay, just work with the feelings. What, what, where is the fear? Where is the suffering here? What's being threatened? And then it takes us, it, you have a chance to really see something that we wouldn't otherwise see. It can, it can be a gift. So practicing equanimity in the face of the worldly winds, particularly praise and blame, is, is a classic practice for a good reason. It's one of the uh, themes that Lumpo Liam, the abbot uh, of what our monastery in Thailand, uh, who took over after Ajahn Chah, really 
emphasizes a lot, working with that sense of wanting praise and being afraid of blame and finding a compass oneself. What is right here? What, is, what, do, I, what do I feel confident in, in terms of right action in this moment? And trusting that, trusting the teachings of the Buddha in the way that we've learned to trust them, because we've seen for ourselves they are true, lead to benefit. And then not focusing so much on the rest of the world, how it's seeing us, what they think. It's hard to do in this culture. We're really trained to try to, you know, to care about how people see us. But it's really worth it. So that would be my encouragement there. Um, The other one is, it always seems to me that how you live, behave, do, treat others, is more important than how well you meditate. So what's the connection? And I think it's a... I'd say it's a very, it's a good observation because, uh, you know, meditation really is, is mind work, working with the mind. And when we're living, that's mind, you know, we are, that's the mind as much as it is when we're sitting in meditation. So how we are with the present moment is important in meditation and it's important all the rest of the time too. We really need to be, um, uh, uh, able to respond in ways which lead to benefit when we're challenged, whenever that is, whether it's sitting on the cushion, as they say, or doing other formal kinds of meditation, or especially when we're in relationship, when we're living in the world. In the end, there doesn't need to be a separation. So what we do when we're uh, training ourselves formally with meditation techniques is, you know, setting up an artificial but very important and and usually essential uh, set of conditions which protect, uh, in which we're protected so that we can start to discover these potentials in ourselves and start to see how we're being caught by the various expressions of greed, hatred, delusion, and, and learn how to free ourselves from those. It's hard to do when we're in the midst of things, having to think of things, working and being busy. And so it's very wise to create times where we're only focused on this and we're supported in doing so through the conditions, whether it's a retreat like this or going to a monastery or having the times that you've dedicated in your own lives to formally practice meditation. And yet, in the end, it's finding ways to be with life. And life doesn't, isn't just that time when we're sitting, it's all of the time. A few. Getting a bit yeah. tired, huh? You had enough. No. <laughs> <laughs>
I'd like to hear one more from uh, Aya, at least. Mm. And uh, a whole fistful here, so <laughs> give us 15 minutes and we'll try and sort the world out. Hmm. Oh, I'm afraid to open up a can of something. Uh. Hmm. Could you speak about wise, compassionate action? Presumably this path is intended to naturally go there. How do we shake off complacency and do our part to help the world? Oh, this is the bee and not and being armchair Buddhists. So um, I don't think that if we're really doing the work, we could, I don't think it's possible to be an armchair Buddhist because um, really this, this path requires us to rise up and climb a Himalaya with our bare hands but with um, real tools. And, and if we develop uh, understanding of suffering, then suffering is not an obstacle. And the Buddha didn't ask us to look at suffering because it would be an obstacle to our ability to climb that Himalaya internally. But because he understood that seeing uh, suffering for what it really is, will help us to go through it and it then it becomes our teacher and um i think that the buddha was the uh you know the armchair buddhist suggests to me that we're not helping the world but i think the buddha gave us a way of helping the world in, in a um such a pervasively beneficial manner we're offering harmlessness. This is a, an inner disarmament. We can't uh, ask our, ourselves individually. Um, it doesn't seem to work. Not just in this day and age, but for, all, for centuries. Disarmament might happen, but it seems to be temporary. It depends on a benevolent leader. And then again, a, a non-benevolent leader arrives and does the opposite. So there's, this world is fraught with greed, hatred, and delusion. As long as people are deluded, they will pick up arms and fight with each other. They will throw not only um, weapons at each other, but they'll also throw verbal daggers. In daily life, we do this. And we do it to ourselves. This is where the self-blame. We're, there's a war in our own minds. It starts here. We think that peace starts out there. But if each one of us has the ability to uh, create a field of goodness within the heart, then we stop um, producing vile and violent activity and speech and thought that... Um, are the source of weaponry. And the more persons who do that work, then the less uh, violence there is on the outside. As to the nature of the world, that's not something that we can really change. We, we can do inner transformation through this work. So 
if we're really doing the work, we're doing the work. We're not just sitting and watching our breath. It's, it, it goes far beyond that. But we start with that to be able to see what is, what this suffering, what does, it, what does the Buddha mean when he says that there is dukkha. We can understand it intellectually, but to understand it deeply, we have to observe how suffering arises in the mind, and we can only do that by sitting and taking all our comforts away, practicing this level of sense restraint for a a certain period of time, the grenades start to go off. You know, the critic, the memories of all the things that we regret having done, they're right there in our hearts. And we do begin to develop a sensitivity, hopefully, and an awareness of how important it is to live harmlessly. And then we try to work towards that. So I think that's the benefit. Um, And then we try to live that. We don't just do it here in the hall, obviously. If we don't take it out the door with us, then what have we been doing? So that's... uh, a powerful social activism, but it seems very little. It seems maybe insignificant because it's so invisible. But it's a powerful, penetrating work, and it it has far-reaching effects if we do, if we are able to bring this back into our daily life and make wise choices. Um, about who we spend time with, how we spend our time, how much compassion and forgiveness we can offer to others. We don't, we don't get peace in our own minds if we keep listening to the habit of self-criticism and self-degradation or disparagement. And in the same way, we don't want to offer that to others. So we practice forgiving ourselves and starting over and using the Brahma-viharas, these divine abidings, to drop by drop and change our habits. It's a gradual, gradual training, little by little. Just like somebody that learns how to swim. You start in the shallow place where you, you learn how, how to do it and then you go in the deep end compassion the same way and em- having empathy for ourselves in the middle of our dukkha then we can instead of turning the volume up on the self-critic we turn it down our habit is to turn it up and believe in it but we, the Buddha's instruction is to not to indulge in thinking and story but to study the breath, study the breath formation in a way that it's so our ability to know ourselves is embodied and we spread the breath throughout the body and feel the, the, sen- the physical sensations, the tinglings, the, the flow or the lack of. And then little by little, by learning to feel with our own suffering, whatever level we're at, 
we start to develop compassion, we can, if we're turning the volume down, not believing the stories, but seeing and, and noticing what it is to be human, then everyone is like this. All beings have this kind of em- embodiment opportunity. And if we can develop that, then we can walk out back into our daily life and be a little bit more peaceful, a little bit more compassionate. And people notice. It, it might even make them uncomfortable. But it certainly arouses their curiosity. Where were you? I was on a meditation retreat. Well, what do you do? You know, you've all been there. You know what that's like. And at first they think it's weird. But people have been coming here for 50 years and it's not weird anymore. That's how many thousands of hours of meditation have been going on in this hall. But when Sharon and Joseph and Jack first bought the place, it was nobody. I remember getting a lift here 30 years ago and and the guy who dropped me off, he said, what do they do in there? <laughs> I said, it's a school. Oh, a school. I was in pink robes, you know. <laughs> Shaved head, he thought it was probably pretty strange. Now it isn't. It's an enormous gift of peace to this world. And it multiplies uh, through our pure presence, our intention for pure presence. It may feel not so pure to us, but our awareness of the blaming or the fear or the trauma or the critic or the dukkha just our intention to notice and our aspiration to pay attention for a few minutes, a few hours, a day, is the world doesn't do this. This is making peace. This is becoming friend of truth and, and growing in compassion and loving kindness. And then that's the, 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 the sentiment that we it somehow it's contagious. It's, so is anger, but we're not developing anger here. So we we we're really blessing ourselves and everyone else. That's not armchair Buddhism, at all. I suppose just to comment that, uh, yeah, you know, if you take this as Buddhism, then you're really taking one, certainly this is a crucial aspect of it, but the Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, right livelihood. <coughs> and of course the other um, feature of Buddhism, or Buddhist, is uh, it's a network. So Buddhists has always had Sangha. So you took at Sangha, both, you know, kind of monastic Sangha, but also the very sense of collecting, cooperating, networking. And you sort of, that's, that's the model whereby you, 
you um, what you can't do individually you you do as a collective and uh, um, then the collective of course has greater effect on the social collective than perhaps the individual does so you know we must look at Buddhism in, in a multi-dimensional way, both this quite refined, purified mind, but also, you know, connecting and interacting and forming strong, committed um, groups for harmlessness and who refuse to participate in greed, hatred, delusion. You know, so I think is our sense of peaceful activism is just to refuse to participate in madness. <laughs> wherever you can <laughs> and if you do it as a group then you know you may have an effect what else can we do with our lives really We've come to the end. So thank you for your interest and questions and uh, um, yeah, you know, we say these are responses rather than answers, um, but to help you to configure, think things through, um, yeah. And there's a lot more, but I'll see what I can do to sort of cover some of these topics in a in a talk. As it's generally, <laughs> you know, it's generally how do I stop suffering? <laughs> Which we have a few things to say about. <laughs> anyway, so enough of the verbals for the evening, I think. Shall we just conclude? I thought it might this little. Um, uh, I have a small mantra we could perhaps do together. Yeah. <coughs> mm. So just because we, you know, interacting, perhaps just sounding together. <coughs> so we did a mantra yesterday, which was two words. <coughs> so tonight I thought we could try one word. It's pretty late. <laughs> so the word is namo, which is um, praise, homage, namo, namo buddhaya. But you, you can just do namo. And I think this half of the room could do na, and this half of the room could do mo. So it's only half a word. <laughs>
What if you can't remember it? <laughs> so, so um, I think we start with the nas, and then the most can come. <laughs> Namo. together as you wish. No. Mm-hmm. 